You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 108 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. The tax incentives for investors of early stage innovation companies are still not widely known, although they have been around since the 1st of July 2016. So I asked Simon Dorovich of ANA Tax Legal Consulting in Melbourne to tell you more. Here's Simon. The early stage innovation companies rules, they're still quite recent. They apply to shares or other equity interests that were issued on or after the 1st of July 2016. And they're designed to incentivize investment in early stage innovation companies by providing investors with tax benefits for investing in them to make those investments more attractive. The, broadly speaking, the benefits are a tax offset and concessional CGT treatment. But perhaps before we get to what the benefits are, we'll cover how to qualify. How does the company become an early stage innovation company. So they need to be early stage. What does that mean? Incorporated within the last three income years, that's inclusive of the current year. And before I continue, the test is applied at the time that the shares are issued. So if the time the shares are issued to the investor, if the company was incorporated within the last three income years, inclusive of that current year, or registered in the Australian Business Register within the last three years, or incorporated within the last six years, again inclusive, and across the last three income years, it and its wholly owned subsidiaries incurred total expenses of $1 million or less. So that's three alternate tests. That's the first thing that the company has to be. Can I ask you three questions? Sure. The first one is the early stage innovation incentive. Um, what is it actually called? We call the company's early stage innovation company, so ESIC. What do we call the incentive? Does that have a name or not? It doesn't have a name. I don't think it does. I, I think see. it's just incentives for early stage yes. innovation companies. Okay, good. So I start, I start again. So the incentive for early stage innovation companies only applies to the purchase of shares. So when investors go in and buy the shares of a company, so invest in a company, be it current shares or newly issued shares, it doesn't apply when an investor gives the early stage company a loan. And the reason is probably because a loan is not an investment, a loan is a loan. That's exactly right. It has to be an equity interest, where a loan, of course, is, is a debt interest, so it wouldn't qualify for the benefits. It has to be, well, in the vast majority of cases, it's a share, but potentially some sort of hybrid instrument that, under the debt equity rules, qualifies as equity rather than debt that may not have the name share, that could also qualify for these, these benefits. Second question, the company has to have been incorporated within the last three income years. 
So that means I could basically just move the startup business into a newly incorporated company. Like let's say I've been going for five years, I just set up a new company and move my startup business to the new company. Yes, Is though the I only keep two things in mind. One is I lose the tax losses. Yep, that's three things. Good, good point. Uh, you know, potential loss of tax losses. The the company, if it's left completely empty and you you wind it up, then the losses would be foregone. Two, I consider the potential applicability of Part Four A, and three, is there any CGT on the transfer? If, if what you're transferring is a CGT asset and it has some value, then you're dealing with associates. If it's not done for market consideration, then you're triggering a cost on the market the substitution rule. Market, yeah. market substitution rule. Mm. So there may be tax to pay under that mm. plan. Yeah, fair point. question is, when we look at incorporated within the last six years and then over the last three income years, incurred total expenses must not be more than one million. And then we include the wholly owned subsidiaries, but we only look down, we don't look up. So we include the subsidiaries that the company owns, but we don't look at the companies that own the early stage innovation company. Yes. So we only look down, we don't look up. Yes, that's right. So in that sense, it's different to the connected rules. You would also look up and and sideways to if you had a parent entity that controlled another entity, it was the sibling entity under the connected rules, their turnover would count as well. But for here, you only look at wholly owned subsidiaries. So the next requirement to qualify as an an early stage company is that together with any wholly owned subsidiaries, the company incurred total expenses of $1 million or less in the previous income year. And together with any 100% wholly owned subsidiaries had assessable income of $200,000 or less in the previous income year. And finally, at the test time, which as I mentioned at the time that the shares are issued, none of the shares in the company were quoted on a recognised Australian or overseas exchange. So it can't be a listed company. So you could list the day after you receive the investment? Yeah, I believe so. Unless there was, I suppose, part of a, a scheme. But, yeah, the testing is done at a particular point in time. It doesn't look at what changes has occurred since the the test. Part of these conditions are confusing because you have this incurred total expenses are less than one million. You have it once with respect to companies that have been incorporated within the last six years, Mm -hmm. but then you have it again as an end condition together with assessable income. So the difference between the previous test that I mentioned looked at the last three income years, whereas this looks at just the previous income year. And another difference is the test that looks at across the last three income years, the total expenses incurred was $1 million or less. That is one of the three... Either or. Yeah, either or. So it may be that 
we don't even get to look at that test. If the company was incorporated in the last three incoming years, that's a very clear black and white test. You would just say, well, that one's satisfied, move on to the next test. Yes, and then in the next test, the total expenses come in again. Yeah, that's right. To be an early-stage innovation company makes sense that you have to be early-stage, and you also need to be innovative, as the name would suggest. And there's two different ways of satisfying this innovation test. One is a points-based test that I think, because it, there's a greater degree of certainty compared to the second, the principles-based test, is the one that taxpayers will want to apply first because there's less gray. confusion, less grey, less less doubt. So there's the criteria for this 100 points are set out in a table in section 360-45 of the 1997 Act. And I think there's eight different ways, yes, that you can get points. And depending on what condition you satisfy, maybe it will give you 25 points, maybe 50 points, maybe 75 points. So to give you some examples, seven, if at least 50% of the company's total expenses, your notional R&D expenditure, then that gives you 75 points. If it's between 15% and 50%, that will give you 50%. Now, obviously, you can't came both the 70, it's either mm. or. It shows you the interaction between the R&D tax incentive and this early stage innovation companies. If you're claiming R&D and your expenditure is greater than 15%, you're at least halfway to qualifying as innovative for the purposes of these particular rules. And also the accelerating commercialization grant. If the company receives that grant, they get 75 points, so they're almost there. Oh, they're almost there. Some of the other things that help a company get to that 100-point mark is if they're completing or undertaking an accelerator program, if they're the holder of a patent, a standard patent, a plant breeder's rights, innovation patent, uh, the owner or licensee of a registered design registered in Australia, if they have a written agreement with a research service provider, then these are the sorts of things that could help a company get to that 100 points. But if, as a fallback, if the company can't get to the 100 points under those tests, then they can potentially still qualify under some principles-based qualitative criteria. You need to demonstrate that the focus is on developing for commercialization, one or more new or significantly improved products or services, that there is a high growth potential, that the business can scale, that there's the potential to address wider markets, so not just you know Victoria or New South Wales, but Australia as a whole or even international markets. And that there is this innovation is the potential for competitive advantages. If you can demonstrate those things, that the company is innovative and it's 
growing, scalable company that can access wider markets. That's the kind of company that the government wants to be giving these concessions to. If you can demonstrate that, even in the absence of showing the 100 points, then the company will still meet this innovative condition and can benefit from the concessions. When you think of your clients, have you had a client that qualified through the principles-based qualitative criteria or have all no, your clients qualified through the 100 points? All, all through the 100 points. Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't have a good idea of what it's like to go through the process of qualitative. the qualitative-based based approach and what they're really looking for and what kind of feedback you get. Hmm. I can imagine you are at a higher risk of being audited when you come through the principles-based approach. Well, my understanding is that you... It's difficult to tell what triggers triggers the ATO to decide on an audit. Yeah, what I was actually wondering, I'm not certain, is is it a case of a self-assessment system where we meet these qualitative criteria and we're going to go ahead and tell investors that we are an early stage innovation company in which case I would agree that or at least if audited the risks are certainly greater so it may be worthwhile perhaps even applying for a private ruling or is it one that you actually have to apply for proactively and I'm not actually certain what Mm. the I can imagine most investors before they put money into a company if the company doesn't qualify through the 100 points, maybe they stay away from it anyway. But if they don't, then I can imagine they would definitely get a private ruling before they put money into the company. Even with the 100 points, that certainty, if I was a potential investor, to have as the stamp of approval from the ATO is certainly worth more than... Makes it a less risky the, the investment. Exactly right. Because ultimately, it is the investor that is claiming these concessions. The company is benefiting in the form of increased number of people wanting to invest in them. But from a tax perspective, the investor is the one that claims the offset, that claims the CGT concessions. So they need to be sure that they qualify. And they're really, in practice, often relying on what they get told by the company because as a potential investor, the company may not be willing to open up their books and their offices and give away all their company secrets. But it's an enormous risk for investors. They might invest $10 million into a company assuming that it qualifies as an early-stage innovation company and then when they want to sell their shares, it suddenly turns out it isn't, and they have to pay CGT on the capital gain. It is a risk, hence wanting to get that ruling from mm. the ATO. With your clients, and did the um, did the investors insist on a private ruling? Yes. I see. So for most of your clients who got the 100 points, the investor also requested a private ruling to be 100% sure. Yes. You mentioned, I forget the number you used, I think it was 10 million dollar investment there's actually the offset has a cap so 10 million couldn't couldn't qualify anyway and the cap depends on whether your the investor is a sophisticated investor which is a defined term for corporations act purposes or an 
you know, one that otherwise qualifies. And it's a 20% non-refundable offset of the amount paid to acquire the shares. The caps are for sophisticated investors. It's a $200,000 offset. So that works out to a $1 million investment. And for other investors, it's a $10,000 refund, which is a $50,000 investment. So I was far out with my $10 million. Yeah. So look, it's still quite substantial mm. amounts, but there is that cap. Mm. How difficult is it to qualify as a sophisticated investor? Is it enough to have a finance background? You don't need to understand a single thing about investments or any financial topic. The name is quite misleading. That sophisticated suggests an understanding. Maybe you have you're qualified as a CFA or a CPA or a, a CA, or you work in investment banking or, or something like that. But it, it's actually it looks at what are your Assets financial means. You can know, you what, lose the your, money? What? Yeah. Can you lose the money? So if you inherit an enormous amount of money from a rich relative and you don't know the first thing about what to do with it, but potentially a, a sophisticated investor. But then there are additional conditions attached to it. Yes. So these other conditions are focused more on the investor. So the investor can't be a trust, a partnership, a widely held company, or a wholly owned subsidiary of a widely held company. So it's, you've got to be the right type. One condition is that the investor and the company cannot be affiliates of each other. The issue of these shares can't be an employee share scheme interest, and the investor can't hold more than 30% of the equity interests in the company. Mm -hmm. Other investors can already hold 30%, but this new investor can't hold more than 30%. That's right. It's not just 30% being acquired in one go, but can't tip them over the, the 30%. But if another investor can hold more, it's just looking at the, the particular investor trying to claim the tax benefit. Yes. And could they then acquire another interest later and not claim the incentive? So the test is applied at the point of acquiring the shares. So if, if that acquisition, you're below the 30%, then you can apply the offset. In the following year, there's an acquisition that pushes you over the 30%, then in that year, you wouldn't be able to claim the offset for that tranche. second second year for that tranche. I see. Good, but I can still claim it for the first tranche. Yes. And though that first, when you come to realize a capital gain, The first tranche in this scenario would qualify for the CGT concessions that I'll discuss now, but the second tranche would not. The concessions from a CGT perspective, first of all, the investor is taken to hold the shares on capital account rather than, than revenue. So you're opening yourself up to the CGT discount if the investor is a, an individual, for example. Why does it say the investor is taken to hold the shares on capital account? So just to make it 100% clear, we will treat you as a 
capital investor, so you will definitely get the CGT discount if you hold for more than 12 months. Yeah, it is that certainty. So, so uh, even if you're in the business of investing, even if you're one of those angel investors and you invest in lots and lots of companies, you're in the business of investing, yes. you will still take it to be on capital account and won't treat it as... That's, that's exactly right. Some people are in the business of share trading, that their shares are akin to trading stock for them. But if we're talking about an early stage innovation company, they will be treated as if they were on capital account and therefore able to get these benefits of being on, on capital, principally mm -hmm. the CGT discount. Now, the concession sorry, is that any capital gain is disregarded if a CGT event occurs within 10 years of the issue of shares and they have been continuously held. That's the, the And that's a huge one. It, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that's huge. If you really pick a, a good company... Walk away with the entire capital gain tax-free. Yeah, so personally I'm not a sophisticated investor, sadly. So if I invested the full $50,000 for CGT purposes, it's not subject. To, it's the offset that's... Mm -hmm. But, now, let's comes, say, you know, but I, now comes the sting in the tail. Yeah, so let's say I invested $50,000 and 10 years later it's now $50 million. Well, I, I'm not paying capital gains tax on that. However, if my $50,000 investment is gone, gone the, it turns out the company was not so successful. It was 11. <laughs> I've lost my money and I can't claim a capital loss. I can't that loss to other capital gains that I make in that year or in future years. Welcome back. Do you remember how Simon mentioned that the investor and the early stage innovation company must not be affiliates to each other? After the interview, I asked Simon whether the term affiliates has the same meaning as for the small business CGT concessions. And the answer is yes, it is the same concept. I also asked Simon more about the assessment of a company as an innovation company, either through points or through the principle-based approach, and whether one should get a private ruling by the ATO. And Simon's response is threefold. The first point is... There's no blank rule. It really depends on the specific circumstances of a case. The second point is that it is often better to take a conservative approach because if this goes wrong and the company ends up not qualifying as an innovation company, then the investor paid up, but there's no tax concession. So it is important to get this right. But of course, and that's the third point, If there is no uncertainty, if things are completely clear-cut and crystal clear, then you don't need a private ruling and you can save the expenses it would take to get one. Over the next three episodes, we will move into international tax. Simon Dorovich will talk about the OECD's project around base erosion and profit shifting, the resulting multilateral instrument and permanent establishments. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Klaas for the support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.